Front of the Baptist Broadcast. Thank you guys for tuning in through Spotify, iTunes, Podcast Addict, and several other outlets to which we're pumped out to through Anchor.fm. If you're watching on YouTube, please do not forget to click the subscribe button. I've been gone for vacation, actually, uh, for a couple of weeks. Um, but really, uh, we we didn't really travel the first week, uh, or for the majority of the first week. Um we, we didn't really travel until Friday, and we drove from Kansas City to Hannibal, which is where Mark Twain was from, Samuel Clemens. Uh, cute, beautiful town on, uh, on the uh, Mississippi River, just north of St. Louis, about an hour and a half, two hours maybe. And uh, we decided that, you know, after two days, we had some time, and we we're just going to keep pushing east, and we ended up at the Ark Encounter in... Uh, uh, just north of Lexington, uh, we stayed in a, a town called Bardstown, which is one of the most historical towns in uh, Kentucky, and um, learned a lot there. Uh, but we we went mainly for the Ark Encounter and for the history uh, of Kentucky, and it was a it was a blast. Uh, we had a we had a great time as a family. Guys, do not if your parents, if you especially husbands, do not neglect your families. Uh, it's very easy for us to do. Men are very goal-driven, very uh, results-driven as well, uh, and those are all good things if put in their right and proper biblical context. Do not neglect your families. Do not sacrifice them on the altar of ministry or the altar of education or the altar of career. Again, those things are very easy to do. Temptation is always near us, uh, but I have never regretted spending time with my family, and I have regretted not spending time with my family. So take that for what you will. What I want to do here is I want to talk about uh, the metaphysics of the apostles. And really, we're not going to talk about the metaphysics of the apostles. We'll talk about the metaphysics of the apostle Paul as seen in Colossians 1.17. But of course, Colossians 1.17 cannot be divorced from uh, the rest of the Pauline literature, nor can it be divorced from the New Testament and the Old Testament. So it's got a context, obviously. But I think Paul uses terminology in Colossians 1.17 that shows us that um, that he's making assumptions that would have existed in his mind, uh, presumably prior to the point at which we could say the Apostle Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write uh, Colossians. I think uh, that the Holy Spirit is uh, using uh, as a means the person in inspiration, uh, the human person, the human amanuensis, and I don't think that uh, the Holy Spirit possesses the person, as it were, and kind of takes control of the faculties and all that. It's kind of more of a dictational theory of inspiration. Rather, I think that the Holy Spirit is using what's already extant uh, within the apostle or the apostolic associate um, uh, and is is assuming, uh, in that sense, the apostle, their character, their interests, their historical context, their uh, pastoral issues that they're dealing with in various churches and so on. So I, I don't think that, you know, in, the, in our doctrine of inspiration, I don't think we're permitted to go as far as to say that the Holy Spirit was actually possessing these men to say certain things, things that they would otherwise not say. Rather, I think that we should say that God is actually using these men um, to say things that, in fact, they would say, uh, but whereas they might speak uh, fallibly and write fallibly, the Holy Spirit uses them in such a way uh, where they do not write or speak 
uh, fallibly. Rather, they, they write and speak exactly what God uh, intended them to write or speak. And so, I think that's an important distinction to make. So, when, when Paul interprets, for example, the Old Testament, or uh, when Matthew interprets the Old Testament, we're in uh, the Gospel according to Matthew at our church right now, um, and there's a lot of Old Testament interpretation that goes on in Matthew. Um, but when, when the inspired New Testament authors interpret the Old Testament, I think they're just interpreting the Old Testament as they would if they were not being inspired, if that makes sense. Um, they're interpreting it as they would... Um, Later on, for example, after they were inspired and they continued to teach and to preach things that they that didn't necessarily make it into uh, the text of Scripture, I think they're using a hermeneutic uh, that is is primarily based in the advent of Christ and in the incarnation, sufferings, and glory of our Lord, uh, and it's not an it's not a hermeneutic that's that's specially formed by the Holy Spirit and then infused into the apostle at the point in time they begin to write the scriptures. It's rather a hermeneutic that is theologically derived from the historical fact of the incarnation, uh, sufferings, and glory of our Lord. And so uh, I I think that's important to kind of preface this with. If you disagree there, uh, we're probably not going to see uh, eye to eye on some of the things here, but hopefully you hang on and, uh, and we can continue uh, and, and maybe you'll benefit uh, in, in, in other regards. So um, what I want to do is, is basically I want to talk about the, the operative metaphysical assumptions, and it's obviously not going to be uh, exhaustive, and I really don't want to overstate my case. So hear me right now. I'm not saying that the Apostle Paul was a proper... Aristotelian philosopher. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm not saying that Paul was a a, a Platonic philosopher uh, belonging to the Platonic sect or the Aristotelian sect. Uh, that's not that's not what I'm saying at all. Um, but I am saying that uh, those two figures, in particular Plato and Aristotle, along with others, Cicero would be another, um, moved and shook the world during their time and 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 after their the reverberation that their work created um, in a way that affected the whole culture and the whole region. In fact, in the whole known world at the time, the entirety of the Roman Empire was uh, affected by uh, Platonic extreme realism and Aristotelian uh, moderate realism, and there's just no getting away from that. It's as as pervasive, I think, uh, to the people living in the first century pretty much anywhere in the world unless they were barbarians or some Germanic tribe that had not yet entered properly so-called into the Roman Empire. But this is uh, uh, these are assumptions, maybe not consciously had. Maybe these people aren't able to systematize, you know, everything that Aristotle said or everything that Plato said, but these are assumptions implicit in the thought patterns and the language of the people in the first century, which means that this is, uh, this is an, these are assumptions um, that the apostles themselves would be making. And, and I don't think I'm overstating it when I say that it's as pervasive as our assumption of the English alphabet. Okay, so again, I don't want to overstate the case. I don't, on the one hand, want to say that, that Paul was a proper Aristotelian. He, he wasn't. Um, uh, it's not as if he was consciously trying to follow the teachings, metaphysica and physica and ethica and all this of Nicomachean ethics and all this of Aristotle. Um, uh, 
but it is the case that in virtue of his historical and cultural and societal context that there were baseline uh, principal assumptions that I think all the apostles would be making at the time that were as pervasive as their own knowledge of their own alphabet. Okay. Uh, now, on that note, when I when I'm con when I'm making the linguistic connection, I, I do that consciously. I'm not just trying to draw a bad analogy. I think there's a very good connection, a very strong link between philosophical concepts and language. In fact, whenever you go and you looked and you and you look at a lexicon, say. I don't know, uh, a Thayer or a BDAG or uh, the, the new Oxford Greek lexicon that just uh, dropped not too long ago. Anytime you look at a good lexicon, it's, it's going to make etymological connections with mainly philosophers um, and sometimes poets, but those who interacted with and use certain terms regularly enough to where uh, the uh, lexicographer could um, kind of uh, could derive a, a sense as to what they were talking about in virtue of their usage, the way they use that word within the context of their work. And so um, Aristotle, Aristotle and Plato show up quite often, for example, in Thayer's lexicon. And, and that means that when we're interpreting scripture and we're using lexical helps, uh, we're actually using uh, these Platonic and Aristotelian uh, connotations. We're assuming them. We don't necessarily, we're not going to bring it out at the pulpit. Um, we're not going to bring it out perhaps in common uh, conversation, but the definitions of those words are understood, at least in part, by how figures like Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, and, and others use them. Um, back then, even prior to the, uh, the authorship of the New Testament, which is why it's important to understand for New Testament Greek because this is the philosophical and linguistic context that sits in the background of the New Testament Greek. And just like the Greek as a language was not infused into the minds of the apostles as they were writing the New Testament, it didn't originate with the inspiration of the New Testament, the Greek, right, was, was assumed um, by the Holy Spirit in his project of inspiring the, the apostles and the apostolic associates. And so um, the Greek comes along with the philosophy, I think. Whatever philosophy was prevalent in uh, Greco-Roman culture at the time, in the first century, then it's going to come along necessarily so with the language, uh, if that makes sense. And that's why we can use uh, lexicons to help us understand the words that the apostles were using, because you take the language, you take the philosophical concepts behind the language. Now, how am I able to make the connection between philosophy on the one hand and language on the other? Don't they seem like two different concepts? Well, they're distinct, they're distinct things, um, but what do we use to express philosophy? We have to use language. We can't use anything else. We have to use some kind of language. So language is always, 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 always tied to philosophical concepts, whether we like to admit that or not. Language is always tied to philosophical concepts, and so... Um, when you say a word, the word itself is not the concept. That's why we can do this thing called equivocation, which is why things become very semantically confusing sometimes. For example, the word trunk uh, 
can refer to like three different concepts, right? Uh, uh, the trunk of a car, the trunk of a tree, the trunk of a car, and the trunk of an elephant. So there's four concepts that the one word trunk can refer to. So whenever we're, we say a word, we're, the word itself is not the concept. The word is a sign, like Augustine says, the word is a sign that signifies something. All right, and the thing is the concept. Words are are signs of concepts or things, right? Things that are 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 deeper to, deeper than just the letter of the language. Uh, the letter of the language refers to the concepts, the substance, um, the thing itself, right? So we might just be able to say that language, uh, a word, for example, is a sign signifying a thing. Um, and so uh, anytime we take a language let's say Koine Greek in this instance, which was conditioned by the classical Greek coming before it, classical Greek conditioned by the philosophers, Plato and Aristotle especially, and the poets, um, then obviously there's going to be some philosophical osmosis that takes place between the classical Greek language and the concepts it represents and the Koine Greek language and the concepts it represents, and it's not that big of a uh, jump from one to the other. Okay, so you're, you're not looking at a whole different language when you get to the Koine. The Koine is, is assuming a lot of the classical vocabulary, uh, and a lot of the vocabulary is identical, uh, and a lot of it isn't. But um, the, the relationship remains, and it remains very strong, uh, in my opinion. And so um, the concepts that condition the language, the concepts that condition the, the sign, the language, the words, come along with the words, all right? So that it's not as if like, the, it's not as if the Greek language becomes something wholly other than the concepts it originally represented when it falls under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit or the use of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the writings of the New Testament, okay? So, so there's a lot of assuming being done by the New Testament. And that now brings us to Colossians 1.17. So if you look at Colossians 1.17, which I don't have pulled up on my screen here. I apologize for that. But um, maybe if you're, you know, at home, you got your Bible with you or you got your phone and you've got a Bible on your phone, you can pull it up. Colossians 1.17, and I'm reading from the New King James here. It says, And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Verse 18, And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. Now, there's a ton of words used here that I think assume a lot, okay? So if you look at the first word that's used here, which is pro uh, in the Greek, but it's the word from which we get this English term, before. And it doesn't have to use, uh, you know, uh, the apostle doesn't have to, Paul in this case, doesn't have to use the term before uh, in terms of chronology, as if God is in some kind of a process, and he just happens to be kind of the first domino in the process of all the others that'll fall after it. Um, before can mean what later we, we, we see is the word preeminence in, in verse 18, and uh, preeminence actually has uh, the word pro in it, the, but the root the root for preeminence is, um, let's see, it's actually uh, protos, um, uh, you can think about the you can think of the English word prototype. It's something that it's a it's a it's a pattern that comes before that which is to be made after it. So it's the first. It's the preeminent. Um, and in verse seventeen we read, "And he is before. He is first. 
He's before all things. So he's the first um, in the order of being, we might say. All right. He's he's um, uh, he is the 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 prime mover or the first cause. Uh, he's there's nothing that nothing behind him causing him to be what he is. Um, there's nothing making him to be. God just is God. He is first. He's before all things. And in him, the second causal statement of verse 17 says, and in him, all things consist. It's like they're all brought together. They stand firm. They are, uh, they are, they are held together, uh, we might say. And so, um, here we have a, uh, a statement of primary causality in, in portion A of verse 17, and then of uh, primary, well, primary linear causality, we might say, in, in portion A, and then hierarchical linear causality in portion B of the text. So you have, um, you have, you have efficient cause, causal, you know, creating power that God is the first in the order or the, or the, or the chain of cause and effect. He's the first cause. He's not in effect. There's no cause before him. He's before all things. And then the second portion is, and in him all things consist. That is, he's the sustainer of all things at present. And so um, uh, all things are are together in him. And without him, nothing is. And then verse 18 goes on and it says, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning. It's still talking about Christ. Um, and I, I believe Christ, according to his uh, divine nature, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that's not according to his divine nature, that's the resurrection, that in all things he may have preeminence. So I think what we have in, in verses 17 and 18 is a claim of, of Christ's divinity and his humanity. Um, and it's, we might not say it's a claim. Uh, his humanity is really uh, implied. It's not explicitly stated in verse 18, but here you have his resurrection, his his priesthood over the church, um, and his uh, his his exaltation, his preeminence. Um, and so I think you have everything here, all the ingredients here to show us that Paul is not, there's nothing original um, in Paul's language here in terms of the, in terms of the concepts of beforeness, um, uh, sustainment, and so on. So these are these are concepts that were already in play prior to Paul's writing Colossians. And here Paul is critically appropriating these concepts with these words, these Greek terms, and he is setting them within the context of Christianity. Uh, he's setting them within the context of the triune God, uh, and even the incarnation, sufferings, and glory of our Lord, as in the case of verse 18. But in verse 17, we're looking at an ontological statement that puts Christ being divine before all things and the causal factor and sustainer of all things that exist. All things consist in him. This language, now, again, I don't want to overstate my case, and I don't want the, the baggage of Aristotle's name to get in the way. When people say Aristotle or Plato, they're talking about the person, right? Plato or Aristotle, the historical person. When people say Platonism or Aristotelianism, they are talking about the work that that person set forth to either uh, to either chart, you know, new paths and 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 
say things in innovative ways and even introduce new concepts, or they're talking about things that those people discovered. So in the case of Aristotle, he was one of the first that we know of, that we have extant literature uh, bearing witness to this, uh, to this reality. He's one of the first that systematized the formal laws of logic. Now, nobody wants to say that the formal laws of logic were invented by Aristotle, all right? So, and they're not, right? The formal laws of logic conceptually and propositionally exist independently of Aristotle's own mind, right? They precede him. Um, but uh, Aristotle was one of the first to, uh, uh, I don't even want to say discover in this, in this situation. He was one of the first to, to systematize them and present them in a way that would be most pedagogically useful for teaching students. Okay, um, and I think that's the, the same. The same is true with uh, with his stuff on causality, which is an extrapolation of the laws of logic. The principle of causality is, and so when you get to this language in Paul, when I say that the apostle has critically appropriated. Aristotelian concepts, I'm not saying that he has critically appropriated subject matter that is unique to Aristotle. I'm saying that he has critically appropriated subject matter that was perhaps uh, most famously systematized and set forth uh, didactically by someone like Aristotle or Plato, right? And, and I would submit to you that that's what most of these guys mean, so like, for example, Dr. Craig Carter, I don't want to pretend to speak for him, but I think I'm familiar enough with his work to, to, to know that, you know, he's not, he's not saying, when he says Christian Platonism, he's not saying that there was something original to Plato uh, that Christianity has taken and thus needs, depends upon the man, Plato, and his genius intellect uh, in that regard. Rather, these are these are concepts uh, with language or words or terms attached to them that are famously systematized and talked about and taught by these men, and so it bears their name. Okay, um, Newton's laws of physics. Uh, when we talk about Newtonian physics, you know, we're not talking about physical laws that Newton invented. Uh, these are these are presumably laws that he has. Um, that he has discovered, though Newtonian physics is is uh, is increasingly, I think, becoming uh, controversial, and has been controversial in history, with the waxing and waning of of the natural sciences. Um, but here we're here we're talking about metaphysics. So all that to say, um, Aristotelian language uh, and the way in which Aristotle conditioned the Greek terminology in this case, I think there's a strong link. Uh, and I think there's a strong link between what the apostles are assuming, what they're writing, what they're talking about, and the meanings of the terms that they use with someone like Aristotle because Plato and Aristotle are such cultural influences. Um, you know, there's a reason why the New Testament authors wrote in Greek. It's because even, even if they're writing from uh, Judea, uh, even if they're writing from Judea, they are heavily influenced uh, by Greco-Roman culture. Judea is obviously under the government of Rome at the time, and so they are—they are—they are by virtue of of cultural osmosis assuming things that are uh, that are coming through uh, the uh, the Grecian language, 
And so I don't think it's a jump at all to say that Paul's words here were at some point conditioned very strongly by someone like Aristotle in the past. And I think the lexical uh, evidence for that is is very, very bold. Um, so what I want to do now is we've, we've, we've read Colossians 1.17, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Let me, I want to zoom out a little bit and, and start with verse 15, because I don't want to short you on context. But in Colossians 1 verse 15, um, Paul is talking about Christ. It's a very, very strong claim to divinity here, I think. When he says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. In other words, Jesus is not a mere creature. Uh, he is God. He is the God-man. And I think you see both of that in verses 15 through 18. You see his divinity and his humanity. Um, and and it's, it's just beautifully and organically put together in this paragraph. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. So already you have causal context here. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. All right, now, here's Aristotle. This is, I believe, let me double check. I want to uh, make sure that I'm getting uh, the citation correct here, if that's at all possible. Uh, of course, it's not going to course it's not going to show me. Um, this is why I don't like digital copies. So I think where I'm at presently, I'm going to confirm that right now. Yeah, we're in his metaphysics and we are in uh, book nine uh, of his, of his uh, volume on metaphysics. So uh, he says this, and, and by the way, he's talking about the prime mover here. So um, Here's what he says. Obviously, therefore, the substance or form is actuality. Now, continue on with me, because this is slightly out of context, but I'm going to try to contextualize it here in a moment. According to this argument, then, it is obvious that actuality is prior in substantial being to potency. And as we have said, one actuality always precedes another in time right back to the actuality of the eternal prime mover. So what he's saying here is that there are things that are, right, things that are actual, which then actualize in something else a potency. Um, so, for example, when I, uh, when I take this phone, I'm, I'm actual, Josh is actual, I am, right, I exist, and I take this phone, this phone is potentially dropped, uh, and it's, it's actually in my hand. Right, so it's actually in my hand. It's potentially dropped. Um, now, I, Josh, who am actual, am going to actualize the potentiality of it being dropped right now. Okay, so I just actualized the potential in my phone to be dropped from my hand. What Aristotle's saying here in in Book Nine of his Metaphysics is that something uh, that that something uh, that a cause always precedes an effect. All right, something that is actual always precedes the actualization of a potential, all right? And that cannot go on ad infinitum. There has to be a, a first cause. Otherwise, you posit an endless uh, chain of effects, which is irrational. 
And so there has to be a first cause, and that is what he is here calling a prime mover. Now, when we shift back to Colossians 1.17, Paul's using very similar language when he's talking about uh, God being, and, and he's specifically talking about the person of the Son, but the person of the Son, qua God, being before, pro, all things. And the context of this, remember, is verse 16, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. I think Paul is saying nothing less here than that Jesus Christ, whom the people, and this is very important for the Colossians at the time, to understand, the people assumed and were conditioned by Aristotelian concepts, Aristotelian metaphysics, Aristotelian realism, uh, they were conditioned to, to hearing language like this with reference to Aristotle's prime mover. But what Paul's doing here is he's making a very strong case that Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate, is that prime mover. All right, so it's a very strong God claim that would have had an appeal to the Gentiles who were mostly pervasive within the church of Colossae, all right? And I think it's, so I think it's a very strong rhetorical appeal. It's a philosophical appeal. Um, it's not, you know, if, if, if this is one of those things that it, it's, it's illuminating to at least be aware of some of the background. Um, now, a, a Christian who doesn't have any idea who Aristotle is, who's never read Aristotle, uh, can read Colossians 1, 15 through 18 and be like, wow, right? Because again, there's nothing original to Aristotle here. This is, is, is Paul's basically saying the son is the God that you know through natural revelation. Okay. Paul's saying the son, this Jesus Christ, uh, who is firstborn from the dead is the one whom you know through natural revelation and the natural theology that you have in virtue of uh, the natural light of human reason. Anyway, I'll go ahead and end there. Hopefully that was helpful. Even if you disagree, hopefully it got the gears turning uh, in one direction or another, uh, and, it, and it makes you think. So again, guys, don't forget to subscribe to the channel. Uh, and I want to end by, by just saying I'm not trying to overstate my case. I don't want to say that you know, uh, Paul was, a, a, was an Aristotelian philosopher. I'm not, I'm not trying to make that claim. I'm just saying that Aristotelian philosophy, as it was taught uh, prior to the lives of the apostles, reverberated in such a way that it's inescapable in the first century cultural context. And if you have the language, you have the philosophical concepts that come behind the language. It's just, it's just inevitable. And to divorce that is to kind of end up in this weird situation where you have language that's not historically conditioned somehow, and somehow in inspiration, in the process of inspiration, these terms were loaded with a wholly new um, set of concepts that they refer to. And I just don't think that's how the Holy Spirit was working. I don't think that's how God was using language in the process of inspiration. So anyway, God bless you guys. Have a wonderful rest of your week.